Relative humidity standing at 80%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould. And today's guest presenter is Car Ha. Good morning, Car. Good morning, Car. This morning we're talking about uh, mental health issues affecting young people. Figures from the Education Bureau show that the number of students suffering from mental health problems rose to more than 1,400 in the last academic year, more than double the number four years ago, with experts pointing to the 2019 social unrest, followed by the COVID-19 pandemic. University students were among the worst affected. We'll be talking about the causes, effects and what help is available. And after 9.45, we'll hear more about the impending launch of a new heat stroke warning system. If you'd like to be involved, you can let us know what you think by leaving a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Joining us uh, now in our Admiralty studio is uh, Dr Rick Smith, who is a, a clinical psychologist, counsellor and educational therapist. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. And also on the line, we have uh, Sky Sue, Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group, and we will be joined uh, by another guest uh, after 9.30. But um, uh, Dr Smith, first, you know, if we can ask you first, uh, you do a lot of work with parents and families. What kind of uh, problems have you been encountering? The, the big insight to anxiety in the past few years is that it's largely an interpersonal condition when it comes to young kids. And, and what I mean by that is that kids use adults to regulate their emotions. Uh, adults could, could uh, we can manage our own emotions just fine. I could be having a terrible day and nobody would know. Kids can't do that. And so when you say, like, what, what sorts of things have I seen? You know, I've seen a lot of parents who are really stressed, which means our kids are really stressed. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I take your point. I mean, <clears throat> I know a few adults who are not particularly good at managing their emotions, but uh, but sure. But of course, in the case of uh, what, what sort of age group we're we talking about here? So, just biologically, the way that kids will um, experience anxiety that that's going to happen until they're like eighteen to twenty-five. What, when I when I say the way they experience anxiety, what I mean is that they will signal out to adults for some help. Every mammal does this. A puppy cries out and the mom dog comes closer. Um, kids do the same thing. So kids will signal out to adults for help and they, they can't really regulate their emotions without an adult's help. And the signaling process is a really big part of what it means to have difficult emotions in childhood. Mm, mm. Um, we're talking about, when we're talking about childhood, uh, um, obviously it's going to be different for, for young children and then, and then you know, uh, children aged sort of like, you know, nine, ten and approaching uh, teenage years. And then, of course, um, I mean, the, the actual figures from the Education Bureau showed that, that there was a particular problem among um, uh, uh, university students and people in tertiary education. So, I mean, how does the, how does the sort of, uh, you know, the, the flow change with the passing of the years? It's that, that it's the way that kids learn how to cope with difficult events and situations that really makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what happens is a lot of kids grow up pretty protected and sheltered or they're not necessarily exposed to the amount of uh, stressors that they're going to, that they need to help prepare themselves for in adulthood. So 
the sort of signaling takes a lot of forms. You know, with a kid, a, a child, they're going to scream and have a tantrum. My baby's going to cry out. We'll have no idea what it's about. Signaling in teenage years might be a kid slamming the door and locking themselves in their room. Um, here's the big takeaway that I've learned from tons of research on anxiety and difficult emotions in childhood. The things that cause anxiety, the things that cause mental health issues, and the things that maintain mental health issues or make them worse are very often very different things. So kids could be born very sensitive to negative emotion. No big deal. Um, or they could be born very resilient. But if you put those kids in a situation where pe they're highly protected, parents are constantly jumping in front of negative emotions and saying things like, I just want you to be happy. Kids get this message that bad emotions or difficult emotions are a bad thing. And then they start to become terrified of negative emotions. And then they do a lot of work to try to avoid feeling bad. And that's what we call an anxiety disorder, is a kid who is afraid of feeling very normal feelings. But I'm wondering, like, what can we help if we realize that the student or the kid are having a very hard emotions? Yeah, so there's, it, let's think of uh, stress just in general as a, like a math equation. On the top, you have things that stress, that are stressful, things that make you stressful, stressed. And on the bottom, you have your ability to tolerate those things. It's a pretty bad idea to spend a lot of energy trying to reduce the number of things that make you stressed. It's a really good idea to try to increase your tolerance and strength. So to your question, like, what can we do? It, part of it is actually expressing confidence to your kid or to a young person. Um, hey, this is really hard, but feelings are not dangerous. You can tolerate it and then actually letting them tolerate it. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like asking, how can we help a kid ride a bike? At some point, you have to take the training wheels off and be okay with them falling a few times. Okay, well, let's bring in uh, Sky Sue, Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Um, you do a lot of work with uh, young people and provide lots of advice and so on. What, what, what kind of um, problems have you been encountering uh, over the past few years? And, uh, you know, given these figures that we've seen from the Education Bureau, I mean, do you think the problem's getting worse? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's um, definitely uh, an interesting time. I think, you know, during, I would say about three, four years ago, and also during COVID, you know, we were already seeing a lot of evidence of young people who were, struggling at the time to cope with what was happening around them, whether it was some of the issues that, you know, uh, was mentioned earlier between families, you know, whether it's adults and children because of COVID and confined spaces, um, but also, you know, the accumulative traumatic events that young people have gone through over the last four years. So if you really kind of think back on a timeline, young people who are currently sitting public exams today, um, they have spent the last four years, basically their entire secondary school years, uh, in in and out of traumatic and they're very difficult situations. Now, when I say traumatic, I mean um, being in situations where they felt unsafe, you know, always constantly changing schedules, not knowing if they're in school, outside of school, you know, very isolated. And then previously, you know, having a lot of anxiety with what was happening socially and then compounding with all the things that happen around the world in general anyways. So I think, you know, I would say that the results uh, from this 
research are really not that surprising. Um, and I think that it's something that we already foresaw in the last couple of years. I think the big question right now that is really important um, is, is really to think about how we're going to help these young people to get the channels of help that they need, whether it's coping with uh, the emotions and the distress that they might be feeling, but also just how to get that community support and to have the awareness that we have in the community to know how to help this generation of young people. Uh, stigma is still very much a real issue. You know, some of the mental ill health that was stated um, are not just anxiety, stress and depression. You know, we're talking about eating disorders. We're talking about um, uh, other neurodiverse um, uh, issues and challenges. And so I think as a community in Hong Kong, we really need to think about how we can actually be better prepared to be supporting this generation. Mm. The past four years are really hard for everyone, actually. So, yeah. uh, and also, You're like, right. do you think that actually, because now we have the mask mandate is lifted, right? So mm -hmm. no one needs to like compulsory wear the, uh, the mask. But do you think this is one of the reasons that will double up the numbers like that will affect the student or even teenagers or everyone's mental health issue? Um, I don't think it's really any one particular event or change in policy, to be very fair. Mm. I think, you know, it's just a compound of the constant change. You know, what we do know and research tells us is that young people actually, in order to feel safe, they need to have a consistent, stable environment to be growing up with. Um, and I think that, you know, um, the constant change and shift um, mm. and just the different events that's been happening to all of us, in itself has been an unstable environment, yeah. you know, and I think that it's it's really not one particular event, but really a compounding effect of all the things that we've experienced. And so at this juncture, you know, it really is about how do we manage going forward? You know, mm. um, do we have enough um, you know, um, channels of support. Do, are people prepared, whether it's schools, within families, within the community? Are we prepared to be able to manage this? Mm. Well, yeah, what, what about that? How about that? How about counselling services at, at schools and universities, for instance? Mm. So I think, you know, one of the things that we've been doing a lot of, you know, Jim, uh, is, is actually really... Um, uh, upping, upping the way that we help young people to equip themselves, not just for themselves, but also for their peers around them. So peer support is something that we find is a very valuable and actually a very good soft approach to kind of get in there earlier um, to prevent some of these um, mental ill health uh, challenges to kind of fester and, and explode. So, but what we're also seeing is, I think that, you know, in different levels of the education system, definitely, I think everyone has stepped up in the last few years. The government has provided lots of resources. People have been running lots of campaigns. Um, but I, I think that the, the big question is, is, is actually, it's still not enough. You know, even though we do have, for example, two social workers who are supporting an entire secondary school, you know, the reality is that these two social workers or even additional, maybe a team of five people can only really help with some of the critical crisis uh, intervention work. What we're talking about right now in order to prevent numbers from further going up is to have into place a preventative scheme as well whether it's utilizing peer support, uh, social-emotional learning in advance, earlier, 
not just in secondary school, but probably in primary school as well, and have it sort of like a uh, something that continues to really scaffold young people um, so that we prevent these numbers from continuing to grow. Mm. Uh, Dr. Smith, I saw uh, one school principal quoted as saying the, the education system itself was partly to blame because of the way that uh, there's an emphasis on results and, uh, and, and kind of rote learning, particularly you know, in, in locally run schools. What do you think about that? I, I can't disagree with it. One of the biggest changes in education in the past uh, decade is this reliance on screens. And I know that's not directly what you're asking, but when I think of the push for results and for outcomes... I think of how much time kids spend interacting with a computer screen. They're not spending that time interacting with people. And so the opposite of a mental health problem is actually connection, right? And, and here's the bottom line. Oxytocin, the feeling of connection, uh, that pushes down on mental health problems tremendously, gets rid of anxiety. That only comes through physical contact and eye contact. Kids aren't getting a lot of that. A lot of their connections are, are with a, a two-dimensional flat screen. Mm. Mm. Uh, and obviously we've been through uh, you know, a great deal more of that than usual during the pandemic with uh, you know, schools being closed from, for, at times and, uh, and people working from home and what have you and not being able to socialise. It, it's such a big problem in that socialising is it's not just something that happens. It's a set of skills that kids learn. They, they learn like, the nuances of what it means to have a, have a mask off or to smile. I remember kids saying to me when they come in, uh, after the mask mandate, they forgot what a smile looks like. They forgot to smile to people. Um, these very small things that, that you add those up over the course of a day and we feel a little bit more connected, we feel a bit less anxious. So what I'm seeing a lot of is, is kids actually just don't know how to put their hand out and say their name. They don't know how to say like, hi, I'm Alex. Like they have no idea. Um, and then they recognize they have no idea, and they spend a lot of time alone, isolating themselves back behind a screen. It becomes this sort of reinforcing process where they become more and more isolated, um, not really realizing that this is contributing to the, the reason that they're staying isolated in the first place. So, so how are we able to break that pattern? Yeah, how are we able to break that pattern? Kids need time together. They need time without screens. And as much as schools want to rely on test scores and transmitting information over slides, and, you know, the way AI is coming in, um, there really needs to be face-to-face -face contact. There really needs to be time for, um, you, you know, those conversations that kids have in the hallway, uh, just the, the few minutes in between classes if they're changing classes, those turn out to be really, really important mm -hmm. in terms of mental health. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh, and then I also think because like the mental health issue, actually it is very big part in our life. And but for the Chinese culture, it is very hard for us, for the people to say it out that like oh I'm really upset, I'm I'm having a depression or something. Maybe like we just get used to it after like so many years. So do you think the education is like occupying a very big part of helping and teaching them to admit? Um, who they are and they are like really having a hard time and then like we can help them after they really realize they have some kind of emotional problem? It's interesting you ask that. When I did, uh, I, I did research for my um, doctorate and I was really, the, I actually did, I have two doctorates and the first one was in education. And when I did the research for the uh, educational doctorate, I was really focused on stress in schools. One of the big insights that I took away from it was that people actually don't want to solve this problem. It's actually a way yes. that people connect. 
like we have a common enemy. We all like to kind of talk and gripe about how difficult this is. Mm-hmm. And when somebody walks in casual and relaxed and feeling good, we look at them like you don't have any idea what's going on. Yeah. So I'm personally, I'm not actually against stress in schools. I'm not against a, a lot of exam stress. I think it, it actually can be useful if it can get kids in the hallway to have something to talk about, about, oh, let's talk about how dif- difficult this class is. Awesome. The real point is that they're talking, they have something in common, they're focused on their common struggle. Everything about that is, is positive in terms of mental health. Mm. Yeah, because uh, Sky, it has been suggested that the, the, the problem could be a lot bigger than these uh, figures have suggested. Maybe um, from the... the the point that Carl was making just now, I mean, uh, is this partly a cultural factor or uh, are, are things changing somewhat and people are like more aware of the help available and are becoming uh, more willing to speak out and admit that, you know, I've got a problem and I need to get some help? I think we're still going to be facing a mix of both, to be honest. However, I think uh, generally, because of a lot of the education work that we have all been doing, um, whether it's NGOs like Kelly Support Group or, you know, even the government with uh, their different mental health campaigns, I think um, we have all been participating and, you know, would have touch points with um, a mental health education part, you know, in our community. And definitely young people... Um, have been exposed to quite a lot of that in schools. Um, I think that, you know, in general, though, I think we, we actually need to speak to young people mm. to find out what actually is helping them the most. Because I think that a lot of, a lot of um, well-meaning community members and schools, you know, are putting together a lot of policies and things and, and really doing a lot of that. And I think one thing that we have learned working with youth is that we need to also take the cues from them to let us know what is actually going to be the most impactful because sometimes you can have also have and we've had young people reflect this to us right when when you know there's a when there's a suicide um that happens in their community you know there's a lot of information and all of a sudden there's a lot of um talk about it and they sit through lots of seminars and and ultimately we've had young people who said you know you know we we need more than just that, you know, and, and, and for them to be able to engage in that conversation in a different way, in a way that actually they want to engage in as well. I think our role um, really is to, to walk with them and to guide them and to give them mm-hmm. the resources that they need when and, and just to be there to listen as well. Um, I, I, I like what, what was said earlier about relearning social cues and relationship building in this time. I think it's quite critical um, alongside really partnering with young people themselves to really let us know and have a conversation with us to know how can we move forward in, in providing support to them. Uh, do you find that there's any sort of sense of loss? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of uh, university students in particular. I mean, many who would be studying overseas and, and then who weren't able to, maybe were, were, you know, had to stay here in Hong Kong for much of the academic year because their overseas universities were closed. Um, um, going through that period, do you think that do you think there are a lot a lot of sort of um, uh, late late teenagers, young adults who feel as though, you know, they've seriously missed out because of the pandemic years? Oh, for sure, Jim. Uh, you know, one of the, the first things that came out was, was those who were transitioning into university and those who were transitioning into 
out of university. I think um, in the last couple of years, this has been something that's uh, really highlighted and triggered quite a lot of the stress and the anxiety, you know, because, um, you, you know, one of the, the, the one reflections that I had was having a group of interns that came into Kelly and um, them expressing how anxious they felt about graduating because nobody wanted to hire somebody who was COVID educated. You know, and I think, you know, Hong Kong being a city where we we focus and emphasize quite a lot on being able to, to survive through getting a good job, you know, after you get out from a good education, you know, these young people did their very best to actually achieve that university education, but yet coming out into the world as a young adult at the mm. age of 21, 22, you know, they had very, very little opportunities, you know, and everything was, was still very unsettled. And I think that's definitely one thing that has really induced a lot of the anxiety and stress in some of these young people. What you say about feeling of loss, I think, you know, yes, there's definitely an element of that. There's probably more than just that as well. You know, um, and so I think helping this generation of young people actually spans quite a few things. It's about the preventative work that we need to do now for the young people who are still going through that emotional stress, but then also having things in the system in place to help bridge the difficult challenges. And finally, it's, you know, the third aspect is, you know, do we have the right channels and sufficient number of, of channels of help? to really encourage these young people to seek for help when and if they need it. Mm. And and as you're speaking of the feelings of loss of the um, uh, young people, do you think actually the the wave of the immigration from Hong Kong to overseas, like to another country, uh, is one of the reasons that they get the mental health worse? Um, I'm not sure what what you mean, um, but I, I like mean, because if we're I, talking... I, Mm. I mean, the peer like peer support uh, are very important for the students or like the right. teenager, right? And but yeah. throughout these years, like a lot of their friends maybe or like their own family need to move to overseas to like start right. another right. life and a new new experience. So, do you think like the one who stay in Hong Kong like keep staying in Hong Kong, not leaving that kind, and they will like have some if effect? by the, 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 the loss of the friends or something? I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, in the beginning of this, of this conversation, you know, um, any kind of traumatic incident, including the mm. loss of a friend or a change in environment, anything that makes a young person feel unsafe, that actually will contribute to some degree of how they have, uh, what level of emotional distress that they might go through, you know. So I think, you know, what what you've mentioned is definitely one aspect. But mm. again, you know, I think I, I always come back to the fact that is how do we actually equip these young people, even though they might be struggling with all these different reasons, how do we help them to cope through that? You know, um, I think that there's, 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 there's a beauty in some of the technology as well in the situation that you just mentioned. Um, but I think, you know, we come back to, you know, how do we, how do we help these young people yeah. to manage when they are feeling emotionally low and distressed because of some of the changes in the trauma that they're going through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Smith, have you found that? I mean, obviously, you know, Hong Kong's a place where there's always movement, there's always people coming and going, but perhaps, uh, you know, in the last uh, couple of years, it's been uh, more the case than usual. Have, have, you, have you found that a lot of young people are, are you know, up, upset, maybe, you know, traumatised to the extent by, you know, if their friends have left? 
Isn't it such a weird thing how we normalize that here? You know, people have these great connections and then all of a sudden on a random Tuesday, oh, we're moving, we're yeah. gone. And, and kids are just like, oh, oh, okay, I guess that's normal. And then I, I, you know what I hear a lot of is in this conversation is like, how, how do we improve this? How do we improve this? And I think it sends a mixed message when kids get home and, and parents kind of talk about their stress with a point of pride. Like saying that I feel broken in Hong Kong, I feel like I'm on the edge. It, sometimes it's equated to a sense of responsibility and accomplishment. It's like, look how hard I'm working. Look how I, I feel so, you know, I'm right on the edge of, a, of an issue that, you know, I must be so responsible. And I, I, I don't, I think kids get mixed messages. You know, we say to them, like, I want you to be healthy, but like, if you want to be important and matter, then the way you show that is by being in a state of distress. Um, to hear people just sort of pack up and go uh, because they're being called off to a new job or um, it, I think it, I think it sends a confusing message. Okay. All right. Well, we'll stay with us because um, we're going to take a, a short break uh, in a moment for a news summary and a couple of uh, government announcements. Um, we're talking about uh, mental health problems uh, among young people. Uh, don't forget, if you want to get involved, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233 uh, Quick look at the weather. It's going to be uh, mainly cloudy uh, with a few showers. Top temperature today around uh, 25 degrees. The outlook uh, mainly cloudy in the next few days, windier on Wednesday, and the weather will be unsettled over the weekend. It's currently 23 degrees, humidity 79%. New summary with Andrew Shirovsky. A public hospital doctor says COVID-19 is still prevalent in the community, especially among the elderly and small children. Pediatrician Mike Kwan says just because Hong Kong has dropped its COVID restrictions doesn't mean the virus is no longer a threat, especially to the young and the old who've never caught the virus nor had a jab. Unionist legislator Lam Chun Singh says new guidelines on preventing heat stroke at work give more details to employers on how to protect their workers. The guidelines, along with a three-tier warning system, take effect from next Monday. But Mr. Lam questioned the government's classification of workers who are eligible for extended rest periods, saying some of those labeled as having a light physical workload may in fact work in extremely hot environments. And the U.S. Treasury Secretary has warned that a failure by Congress to raise the country's debt ceiling could cause an economic catastrophe. Janet Yellen said that without an agreement to increase what the federal government can borrow, it could run out of money by early June. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Under the current two Hong Kong dollars public transport fare concession scheme, persons aged 65 or above and eligible persons with disabilities may travel on specified forms of public transport at a concessionary fare of two Hong Kong dollars per trip by using an octopus corresponding to their eligibility. Ineligible persons using the scheme may be liable to penalties or even prosecution. Don't defy the law. Since influenza activity has been low in recent years, immunity against the flu virus could be reduced. With more frequent travel and social interactions, the risk of contracting flu could increase greatly. Getting the flu jab can boost immunity against the flu virus and reduce the risks of severe complications and death. Don't drop your guard against flu, especially for persons aged 50 or above, children, pregnant women, and residents of residential care homes. Don't wait. Get a jab. Keep flu away. 
You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And welcome back to Backchat with Kaha and me, Jim Gould. And we're going to resume uh, our discussion about the mental health problems uh, encountered uh, by young people. This is um, based on reports of uh, figures that the Education Bureau uh, um, showed that the number of students suffering from mental health problems uh, had risen to more than 1,400 in the last academic year, and that was more than double the number of uh, four years ago. Um, we have with us... Dr. Rick Smith, who's a consultant, sorry, is a clinical psychologist, counsellor and educational therapist, and Sky Sue, executive director of the Kelly Support Group. And we're now also joined on the line by Aiki Cheung, who's a, a member of the advisory committee on mental health. Uh, Aiki Cheung, good morning to you. Yeah, good morning. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so, w what's your view of the current situation and um, and these figures we saw from the Education Bureau? And what kind of um, advice can you offer to the authorities? Mm, I think uh, I think it's important that we look into where these numbers come from. Uh, in order for a particular student to be reported as part of the number. Uh, he or she will need to be officially diagnosed uh, of any kind of mental illnesses. And I think uh, it's alarming for society to see the number doubled in just four years' time. However, when we compare the number uh, reported, which is uh, 1.400, uh, in the latest year, when we compare it to the number estimated by the World Health Organization, uh, there are approximately one in seven young people who are suffering from various kinds of mental illness. That means uh, uh, I believe that the number is just tip of the iceberg. Uh, however, I, I, I would see it uh, as an improvement or as, uh, as progress to some extent in society. Like I said, uh, in order for a student to be reported he or she will need to go through diagnosis. And uh, I think partly the number increases because of improved awareness and help-seeking behavior among students or maybe uh, other stakeholders in schools, for example, mm. teachers <laughs> and parents. There are, there are various measures uh, uh, rolled out by the government. For example, uh, mental illnesses were officially included as part of SDN since uh, the year 2017 to 18, mm -hmm. which means that uh, schools could now officially uh, utilize public resources allocated to better support students with mental health needs. And also there are other programs like the gatekeeper training for parents and uh, there are student mental health support scheme implemented in uh, a lot of secondary and primary school. I think these all improve the acceptance, uh, uh, the acceptance of mental illnesses uh, in the community. And, you know, because uh, getting a student to be diagnosed in school is a challenging, uh, is a challenging process. Mm. Uh, there needs to be proper screening, uh, which means workers in school need to be equipped with better knowledge and skills in order to do that. And then there must be parental consent 
and also the willingness for a student, a particular student, to 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 undergo a certain assessment. And therefore, I think the increase in number is could be a sign of progress for students who are more uh, uh, likely to be uh, going through a psychological or a psychiatric assessment. So who normally would uh, initiate the process? Is it a question of uh, teachers uh, identifying students who may have a, a mental health problem or is it down to students themselves saying, uh, uh, look, you know, I don't feel good, um, can somebody help? Um, I think caretakers in school, namely teachers, social workers and parents, they are all uh, taking a significant role in referring students to relevant assessment or support services. Uh, I think, uh, like Dr. Smith has mentioned earlier in the program, that children still rely largely on adults in taking care of their mental health. Mm. And therefore, uh, it's important for teachers and parents to have better awareness and knowledge towards mental health in order to better support uh, students in need. Because I'm just wondering if the school are offering, for example, just one lesson for taking care of their mental health per week, or they will have some like questionnaire for the student to fill it in and then like try to see what what is what's just their mental health stage, and then like that the school will help the after after like questionnaire the after work. Mm, I think these are good measures. Uh, However, from my observation that, uh, like, uh, I think uh, Ms. Xu mentioned earlier, there are various types of programs and initiatives currently happening in schools. And what I observed is that uh, young people are having a certain degree of fatigue towards uh, questionnaire screenings mm. and, and some other uh, mental health-related uh, lectures or le lessons or workshops. I think uh, we need to come up with more youth-friendly approach mm. to engage students uh, so that we could better equip them with uh, mental health knowledge and also uh, to, to encourage help-seeking. Mm. Uh, I heard that there are various organizations trying to lead some uh, what we call youth-for-youth program. Mm. That means uh, we, we would very much like youths, to, uh, especially those with lived experience, to be part of the uh, service planning process so that uh, more youth-friendly uh, approaches could be implemented to, to improve the uh, service entry uh, situation. Um, Rick Smith, so we've got, uh, we, we were hearing there about uh, like, um, official help services and then we have like, um, NGOs like uh, Sky Sue's uh, Kelly Support Group. Um, uh, you yourself are a, a clinical psychologist. I mean, is there enough, um, enough kind of uh, overall support, uh, you know, taking everything together for parents and children? I, you know, I think this is one of the big misunderstandings um, about mental health in general. Um, and it's really, really useful to know this. Emotions are social. They're very interpersonal experiences. Um, that can't be more true than it is for kids. And what I mean by that is that when we, when we start from this idea that kids have mental health issues, we assume that the issue is inside of the kid and we take away the 
idea that it's an interpersonal or a social experience. It's so important for, for schools to understand this and for um, teachers and parents to understand this, that emotions are very, very interpersonal. And so just on my own, you don't even have to believe me or the research on this, just on your own personal experience. If you walk into a room where everyone is sad or upset, you are going to leave that room sad and upset. It, it doesn't, it's, this isn't a surprise to anybody who's listening. But what is a surprise is that when we say something like, oh, kids have more mental health issues, we assume that it's a problem inside of the kid. And the, the thing that I've learned so much about like support services in Hong Kong um, and around the world, I suppose, is that they largely target the individual child. You know, a kid will come into my office for one hour a week and parents will want them to just feel better. The other 167 hours a week that the parents are with the kid make a really big difference. And the environment that the kid goes home to makes a really big difference. And the school makes a really big difference. And the way the teachers include the child or not makes a big difference. So are there enough services for kids? Maybe, maybe not. Are there any services that focus on the nature of the relationship between the kid and the, the community and the kid and the adults with them? I'm not aware of many that do it all. So I, my answer would be... It, pretty close to know. So it sounds like what you're saying is it's up to schools and parents uh, uh, to create an environment where the children are going to be sort of uh, happy and, uh, and more, you know, more involved and more fulfilled. No one's going to deny that things like sleeping or nutrition or play are, are really going to have a big deal on mental health. Like no one's going to say argue with that. Mm. But where there is still some misunderstanding in the community is that um, this idea that if, if you know if a parent continues to protect a kid from negative emotions, protect them from disappointment, protect them from feeling isolated, and they say things like, um, "Oh, I don't want you to feel bad," or you know, they, they try to you know, for example, schools will do a lot of things to try to solve the problem of boredom because kids will say like, "Oh, well, if I'm interested, I can focus, and I don't do well because I'm bored," and then schools will buy into that message and they'll try a lot of you know, a very good intentioned people will try a lot of tricks to make class is super engaging and interesting but they're also sending the message that boredom is something that you should be afraid of that you can't tolerate and kids get that message and they become incredibly afraid of being bored and anxious about it and so then they have anxiety about becoming anxious and we ignore that um, instead a message could be like yeah it might be boring and you're going to be okay and you can tolerate boredom and let's get through it not everything in life is you know most of life is actually pretty mundane very very few things are exciting and, and wildly entertaining all the time. It's actually okay to be that way. And so until we can accept that uh, as adults, we play a role in kids' mental health, um, we're really not going to be able to address the problem at, at all meaningfully. Sky mm -hmm. uh, um it, it, it's possible to be overprotective? Um, you know, I think that that's something that, you know, um, I can't really comment on. Um, Particularly because I think that, you know, everyone's bar on what does it mean to protect and or your desire to protect a young person actually will be different. Um, but I will say, you know, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper was talking about earlier about needing to have more initiatives that um, provide support to young people to build those key relationships. And, you know, he's talked a lot about building relationships and having that be the main focus. I think that. There's actually a lot of initiatives around Hong Kong um, that NGOs are, are providing um, to support young people in this. I mean, Kelly Support Group as an organization has primarily been about delivering initiatives and programs that are about encouraging young people to build better relationships with their peers. 
and knowing how to support their peers in those difficult situations. So I think that um, it, it's about the reach, I reckon, um, because not a lot of this in schools or whether within family communities, it's not consistent. You know, NGOs exist to provide some of these, but in the curriculum that they have in school, you know, it's not a consistent thing that you would have that appears all the time and it's always available for young people. It might be available for select young people, maybe not for all young people. And I think that this is something that is a bigger uh, policy consideration, you know, to think about how we can actually look at, you know, changing the environments for both home and also school I mean, home is a very individual family choice, but at least in schools, you know, how can we embed more of these peer support trainings or relationship building um, opportunities to really help young people be able to manage their emotions more? Okay, okay. Well, a very uh, important, uh, enlightening discussion. Um, thank you uh, for your comments on that. Uh, we've got to bring this part of the programme to a close but that, thanks very much to Sky Sue, who you heard there, Executive Director of the Kelly Support Group, uh, Dr Rick Smith, uh, clinical psychologist, counsellor and educational therapist and uh, Aiki Chung, uh, a member of the Advisory Committee on Mental Health. Uh, thanks to all of you. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, audience of RTHK. I'm Po Chen, the Financial Secretary. This year marks the 95th anniversary of RTHK. I wish RTHK every success in starting a new chapter for public service broadcasting. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. And for the last uh, portion of this morning's programme, we're turning our attention uh, to our second topic, and that is the impending uh, introduction of a new uh, heat stress warning system. Uh, from next Monday, there will be uh, a three-tier warning system uh, designed to help uh, people working outside to avoid uh, getting heat stroke. And uh, it will also come with uh, new guidelines and the Labour Department's uh, heat stress at work warning will come with amber, red or black alerts advising of outdoor risks to health uh, for at least an hour and uh, different categories of workers um, will be advised uh, to take uh, uh, different sort of rest at different times and the, and the, the heat stress warnings will be um, based on uh, the, the actual temperature, but also uh, humidity and other factors. Anyway, um, to talk about this, uh, we're joined on the line by Lawrence Yu, who's a direct, uh, Executive Director of Civic Exchange. Lawrence Yu, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jim. So, um, do you think uh, this new system is going to um, um, prove a success? Uh, it's, uh, a lot of people would say, you know, it's a, it's a long time coming, but it's just uh, voluntary at the moment, isn't it? It's, it's um, voluntary for employers to follow. So, I think this is a very important milestone to build a whole society climate resilience. Because um, last year, actually... Actually, this is a government really respond like what community articulate and then to start to bring this to be a recommendation and then also come up a very comprehensive with science-based um, index 
for informing um, the employee about like how to conduct the risk assessment and then also like how to categorize different physical workloads and then also come out of um, his threat um, warning system in Hong Kong. So that I think this is a very important milestone to bring up this um, conversation in the whole society. And then gradually, I think that that will be a very important foundation to develop relevant policy to further enhance the protection of our labor, our general public, and then the whole community. Because this one is like we can recall back actually last year, uh, one um, green NGO, Greenpeace, did a survey to really like um, to survey the worker. Not over 90% of workers agree that in the weather in Hong Kong become hottest over the past year, past 10 years. And then more than 66% of workers believe that increased heat has had a significant impact of their work. So that, that why that is, that show that actually the government did really respond to the community. Yes, I agree. It is very important, this policy, this new policy. As um, I, I remember I read some article before, it, is, it was saying this year will be having a very high chance to, to be the, 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 the top 10 warm, uh, warmest, uh, hottest like, uh, uh, temperature in the record of uh, Hong Kong. So uh, I'm just wondering, like, actually, what is your association? Like, what is your role? Of your uh, was uh, yeah was your role of your association on this policy? So that I think um, our organization role is more like figure out how can we help Hong Kong to decarbonize our different sector and then also um, build up the whole society climate resilience. Because you, if I think the audience also aware that this year just made right now but in thailand in indonesia already measure the record break high temperature mm. already and then in hong kong the climate change is like also influence hong kong like last year we recorded 44 hot days um, in hong kong and the five suspected case of heat stroke heat-related death has been reported by the labor union. And then according to the Hong Kong Observatory, it is projected that by the end of this century, Hong Kong could experience an average 112 hot days. So that it means that Hong Kong did, in, by the end of this century, Hong Kong did impact hard by the impact of climate change. That's why my organization now is really work with other stakeholders in the society, mm. identify solutions to help Hong Kong to mitigate um, the climate impact. Mm. That's actually very meaningful. But uh, on the other hand, this new policy, which will uh, like released on next Monday. Actually, it is not compulsory. It is just like the, the employer can choose if they follow this. Then how can you help with that? Okay, so for this one, I think that is the, Russian, um, the intention of the government is start to build mm. the, a common ground for everyone in the society to start to really aware 
this uh, will be an issue for Hong Kong labor and then also affect our community. And then if you are aware that the government did mention that every two years they will really review yeah. um, this um, recommendation and then this guideline, I think that it will and then also this is and then this guideline actually is not just um, developed by the government itself. Actually, throughout the last years, the government, before the government really launched this recommendation and guidelines, actually this was a result of like a consultation, more than 3,000 occupational health and safety petitioners. So that you can see the engagement process, actually, the government already started. So that in the future, the government can base on this guideline and then to build a wider, wider community consent um, to make it as a policy mm. or a regulation in the future. Mm. Uh, okay, um, a comment here from a listener, John, says uh, Hong Kong Observatory created and published on its website a completely useless uh, heat index, often the heat index being lower than the ambient air temperature. Now they have created a new three-tier system, which according to reporting, the top two tiers wouldn't have been triggered. Hong Kong Observatory needs to wise up and learn that the combination of high air temperature and high humidity can be debilitating. That from John. Um, uh, uh, Lawrence, the, uh, the new warning system will be uh, amber, red and black, although we're told that uh, the conditions for issuing uh, a red or a black warning uh, would be um, very unusual yep. and most of the time it would be a, an amber warning. Um, just, just in terms of the way this new warning system is being set up, I mean, do you think it's going to be effective? Um, I think that actually the Hong Kong Observatory um, come up this um, warning system is based on really sophisticated science mm. background, mm. which incorporate like three important factors, temperature, humidity, and then sunlight intensity. So that the science, actually this is the science um, told us um, what we need to um, care mm. about. And then also how to categorize it, I think that it's like we need to wait um, the implementation of this system and then keep observe. And then I believe that the science community will definitely provide further feedback um, for um, the Hong Kong Observatory um, to further improve the categorize of um, the um, warning system. But I want to articulate one more important point. Is this um, the, now the Hong Kong Observatory only measure um, the heat threat at the Thames Park? However, last year um, the Greenpeace also did a um, study. Is like they show that the West Bob Gulf temperature actually even in one area, uh, the differences can be like four four or five degrees Celsius different. So that maybe in the future, the government, the Hong Kong Observatory also can think about how can make um, the measurement network become more extensive to cover the ho- all over Hong Kong. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, sure. And then um, would you expect that, like one of the factors uh, involved in the index is, of course, the, 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 the temperature. Um, like, like you say, and as 
Carl referred to earlier. A lot of climate experts are expecting this could be one of the, one of the hottest years on, on record. We've got the El Nino factor um, apparently going to likely develop later this year. So would you expect that um, going forward there'll be um, you know, a lot more red or perhaps even black heat warnings? And more, what effect is that going to have on, you know, on, on industry, on, on construction, for instance? Mm-hmm. So I would like to answer your first question, what can we expect for the future? So according to um, the climate experts, we can expect that actually our climate condition will be go more and more extreme so that we can expect more and more hot light and hot days in the future. And then also it's like the air movement pattern will also change significantly under the climate change so that maybe in the future that we maybe cannot experience the wind, a lot of wind uh, or like the breeze during the summer. It will also increase the heat in um, stress with um, for the future and then also the humidity because if we lack of the air movement the humidity will be much more higher and then also hotter temperature will also increase the air uh, water content that will also increase the humidity so that it will be more like a multiple uh, multiplier for different um, climate case to make um, the heat stress become more and more um, serious in Hong Kong or even in the different place in the world. And then for the like the local um, work um, construction industry, it will definitely hit it because now um, the heat, um, the physical workload categories only classify that um, the basketing worker and scaffolder um, as a very heavy industry. Mm-hmm. But imagine in the future, especially in a construction site, like the plasterer, painter, and the other worker actually is working a really like um, not good air ventilation space. So that in the future, if we combine higher temperature and then also higher humidity, this will also impact so-called um, moderate uh, worker significantly. So that in the that's why I think that the government need to really review the categorization time by time, and then also provide a more detail like the rental, minimum ventilation requirement and the minimum um, work environment and the, the mandatory precautionary measure for the worker. Otherwise, it will further um, affect like our construction schedule and then will bring our society economic loss significantly in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, yeah, this is a very major issue which we will be following uh, closely as time goes by. Um, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us on the programme uh, this morning. That was uh, Lawrence Yu, who is Executive Director of Civic Exchange. Um, thanks to our listeners. Thank you to you, Carr. Thank you, Jim. And stay with us because uh, coming up we have a new summary followed by The Brunch.